This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. In Toronto, uh, people are waiting uh, with uh, great anxiety, I think, uh, for the uh, decision in the court case uh, today. Two former political aides to Ontario uh, Premier Dalton McGuinty will find out today what their fate is uh, when that uh, judgment is finally rendered. Richard Brennan, retired journalist, uh, worked for the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park for many, many years. Uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the implications and what may happen. Richard, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. How's it going? Good. Uh, this is <laughs> this is this is something that has gone on for the longest time, and with so many other scandals, uh, and I'll put those in quotation marks that have come up, we kind of forgot about this one. But it's it's a pretty important decision, and a pretty important story. It is it just just for the listeners. It's, it it goes way back. Everybody remembers the gas plant fiasco and and how that's going to cost $1.1 billion to the taxpayer over 20 years. But the accusations were that the, this uh, a group of people, uh, if you will, uh, behind-the-scenes people worked for McGinty at the time, uh, they purposely tried to, this is the accusation, that is, the allegation, yeah. that they purposely tried to uh, get rid of emails that may have given us some insight into some of the dealings and the decisions with respect to canceling that gas plant way back when. And, and this is what it's about. And, um, and as you said, we're going to get the verdict today. But I can tell you right now, nobody's going to jail. It, it was a sordid story. There were a lot of accusations back and forth. Uh, the opposition parties back in the day uh, had a field day with this one, and uh, especially once the police got involved. Uh, uh, but and, and again, not unlike what uh, what Patrick Brown tried to do with Kathleen Wynne with the Sudbury case uh, late last year, uh, they tried to paint McGinty as the bad guy. The authorities, uh, just to clarify, uh, said right from day one that McGinty was not being investigated, that this was his staff that apparently were the, the ne'er-do-wells in this situation. But nonetheless, uh, it's something that sticks to a government. Oh, it, it, you know, it all, I mean, the Teflon wears off sooner or later, and and I think it has in this case, how much the public is paying attention to it, you know, that, that, that remains to be seen. But, you know, they, they, were, originally, they were originally charged with breach of trust. And, and, I, and I say uh, David Livingston, the, uh, the one-time chief of staff for McGinty, and his deputy, Laura Miller, and they were both charged with uh, breach of uh, trust. And that was, that was uh, thrown out. And now they're, they're charged with... Uh, with a, a, a basically just getting rid of emails that might have given us, again, some insight. Yeah, the, the charges have been pretty much watered down. Yeah, they pleaded uh, not guilty to re, uh, in relation to computer hard drives wiped out uh, in the McGinty. And I think the two outstanding charges right now, one is attempted mischief and the other is illegal use of a computer. Uh, yeah, which what, is which is not really exactly. Well, I mean, there were some much more serious charges laid, but uh, as this as this trial progressed, and, and you know, you talked about this considerable length, of course, uh, as it was happening, uh, it, it was very much the, the the judge telling the crown, you know what, you guys haven't really proved much here. They they, they didn't see that, that. Which, by the way, we need to make this distinction as we have with some of these other trials. That that doesn't mean innocence. It just means that the burden of of, of evidence that or, or the 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 amount of evidence that's been presented so far probably would not lead to a conviction. I think the jig was up when when, when the OPP's expert witness, the Crown's expert witness, which is a retired OPP investigator who had investigated this this case originally, they wouldn't allow his uh, testimony. 
Yeah, the judge threw that out. That was yeah. an interesting decision. Yeah, that was I, because it said that he he was uh, you know in a, a conflict position because he'd originally uh, originally investigated this and then retired and was then brought up as a I don't know to me what what better person to <laughs> to give testimony as a guy who who actually investigated it. But what do I know? But, you know, it's it's interesting, and there's a little inside politics, inside baseball stuff that's going on here too, Richard, uh, that, uh, you know, I think the initial assertion from uh, from these folks, from Livingston and, and Miller, was that, look, it, this happens all the time when there's a change in government, or as, as a, a, a term is wearing down, and you've seen that. I mean, you know, the... the uh, <laughs> The paper shredder machines are, are backed up to the back door of Queen's Park or at City Hall. Anytime there's going to be a likely change, but uh, that that argument didn't really wash with too many people. And they said, "No, no, 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 no. We know that happens, but this is different." Well, and I'll tell you why it's different. Because uh, Laura Miller and Livingston they hired Laura Miller's boyfriend to come in and wipe these uh, computers clean. And he was doing, uh, brought with him a kind of an industrial strength wiper, if you will, to, uh, to get rid of the information. This just wasn't, you know, the usual, like you say, backing up the trucks and, and, and you know, shredding this and that. This was, this was done to just absolutely eliminate any information. Now, whether it was or wasn't, it you know, remains to be seen. But this, this was kind of had a clandestine feel to it as opposed to uh, governments I've covered in the past, and you're absolutely right. I would look across the road at McDonald Block, and, they, and the shredding yeah. trucks would be there backed up. <laughs> if, there, was, if there's a change of government this June, uh, you know, <laughs> whoever takes over the Premier's office is going to find every drawer there empty. I mean, you know, they don't leave anything behind when there's a change of government. Uh, no, they don't, and, and it's just that's the way it is. They don't want, to, they don't want any kind of bad dealings to come back to haunt them. But I think at the end of the day, like I said, nobody's going to jail here, and I think they'll walk on the, uh, the more serious charges of, of uh, you know, erasing these emails. You know, whatever, you know, minor charges, they might, they might get found guilty of, of that. But the, the major charge, uh, they're going to walk, I'm convinced. And what are the implications of that? And we go back, this is going back a few elections now, Richard, when you look at the, at the, the chronology of what's happened here. And, uh, and the, uh, the election right after that, of course, Dalton McGinney eventually resigned. Uh, we don't all know what the leadership, and Kathleen Wynne eventually became the leader of the party. Uh, you know, Tim Hudak and Andrew Horvath did their darndest to try to make this stick to Kathleen Wynne uh, and tried to make this a huge election issue. Uh, the Liberals won nonetheless. Uh, there was another election after that, and uh, they not only won, of course, but they won a majority government. Is this still front of mind, and is this still politically volatile? It, it, like I say, it's just another uh, you know string of spaghetti thrown up against the wall. This, but will will people go to the the you know polling booth thinking, you know what? I don't like that decision that was made in that that gas plant email uh, fiasco. And I'm not voting for them. Mm, I don't think so. I, and I mean, I, I guess the other side of that, too, if you wanted to build an argument, and I'm sure that's what's going on in some circles right now in Queen's Park, is they're anticipating this verdict today. 
is uh, is the same element that I guess that the, the Harper conservatives used back in 2005 during that federal election campaign of, look, at, okay, maybe you don't believe that there was a whole lot going on with the sponsorship scandal, but there's a body of work here. And it's not just this, it's da 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 and, and you got to think that's coming up, because uh, notwithstanding what happened in Sudbury with that by-election trial, uh, they're still trying to make this out to be a corrupt government. And that's a word that really seems to resonate with people when you throw that one at them. Well, yeah, that, that sleazy, corrupt, whatever you might want to call it, but that's, it's certainly got the stench of a government that's been in power too long. There's no question about that. And this, this is just another piece in the puzzle but whether people have made up their minds to get rid of these uh, the liberals, I think they have in certain quarters. But I'm not uh, I'm not convinced that the the, uh, the province as a whole, the voters as a whole, have uh, have got there yet. But there's still you know a few months to go yet. Yeah, because we saw that eventually with the Harper administration as well, and the and the Senate scandal, et cetera. And it was just like, okay, you guys have been there too long. Uh, you're you're taking yourselves far too seriously. Maybe it's time for a change. And that's that's an uh, an opinion that can happen with elections. Sometimes you're absolutely right. But I guess the question, and we probably won't know this until June the fifth, I guess, of of this spring, Richard, is uh, with that. I mean, no matter what the verdict's going to be on this. Uh, is this really just going to reinforce the people that don't like Wynn and the Liberals already? Uh, the Liberals already, obviously, are going to be shrugging their shoulders and saying, what's the big deal here? Nothing to see. Move on. But there's always that body of voters that are not hardcore conservatives, nor are they Liberals. And and that's that swing vote that could determine elections. And we really don't know what they're thinking about this now. There's a lot of people still sitting on their hands. Here. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah they, they don't know which way to go. Whether this decision, uh, you know, affects them one way or the other, it, it's going to, for for the, the the liberal, you know, those who can't wait for the liberals to leave. Well, this is just going to add fuel to the fire, regardless of what decision is, comes out of this verdict. And, but I, I I tell you, I was I was still around at Queens Park before I retired when this is all coming up, mm-hmm. and and you know, evolving and charges and stuff like that. I think it stinks. I, I, I was really appalled by the fact that these backroom folks would think that they had the power and the license to go about and, and in the dark of night, if you will, try to erase any information that the public, I say, deserve to know about that uh, that gas plant deal. Well, and therein lies the problem about you know who knew what, and those are the questions that we were always asking. Not unlike the Senate expense scandal. I mean, you know, the assertion from from the the Harper team back in those days in Ottawa was, look, at the Prime Minister didn't know that they cut a check to my Duffy. He they, this that happened. You know, I know he's supposed to have control of it, and and the assertion here, which frankly was kind of validated by the OPP was, look, at McGinney didn't know anything about this. This was something that Livingston did on his own with the help of Miller. Uh, well, there were other people involved in this, because one of the key issues of that trial, and I know you remember talking about this because uh, you were still covering that at the time, was that you couldn't get into this system. You couldn't scrub anything like this without this one key password, and only a handful of people, I guess even less than a handful of people, knew that word. Uh, Miller was one, Livingston was another, and they passed it on to this guy who did all the scrubbing. So, I mean, they've got blood on their hands no matter what. 
Well, you know, uh, you, I know well that you've heard the expression. You know, boss hasn't doesn't have to tell me what he wants. I know what he wants. Yeah. And that, and I'm not suggesting McGinty, you know, was made, you know, knew about this. I still have trouble believing Harper didn't know about that check. But I'm not. I, I can't, I can't say because I don't know. But the old expression just keeps popping into my head. You know, the boss doesn't have to tell me what to do because I know what he wants. And I think this is a perfect case of that. There's so, so much of this going on right now. I mean, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, here's one, here's another. There was the by-election situation where the premier testified. Uh, you've got this, which is carrying on. This is back from 2011, just to put the, the time frame on this for people. Well, here we are six years later, and we're finally going to get a judgment on this. You've got uh, the the nomination process here in the Hamilton area with the Ontario PCs, and and now we just found out earlier this week that uh, that the feds are going to get into that. Federal prosecutors are taking over that investigation. I mean, the, it's no wonder. <laughs> I hate to be overly cynical about this, Richard, but it's no wonder people just kind of turn their backs and say, you know what, they're all idiots. Yeah, a pox in all their houses. Yeah, and and and, and that's and the, certainly that that's the case. It just, but it, I think people have a, a right to be outraged when governments and parties think they have the right to deny them information. I mean, we're, we're not, you know, we're talking about a government here or, or a party. We're, we're not talking about the Hells Angels. You know, we're, we're talking about people who were elected to represent our interests. And when they first get in, Certainly, they, they, they probably live up to many of the promises they make. But as it gradually goes on, they, they, it's this power corrupts. And, it, and I've seen it time and time again, that, people, that politicians, they think that all of a sudden they're above any you know, reproach by, by anyone, and they can do basically what they want. If that sounds cynical, yeah, I suppose it does sound cynical. But you know what? I was there for a lot of years. Let me ask you something. And I remember just after the Bob Ray government got elected, uh, this is back in the early 1990s. And I was there. <laughs> you were there. And I, uh, I had Peter Cormos in studio here, of course, the MPP for the Welland area. Uh, and Peter was always a pretty outspoken guy. He lasted, what, about a minute and a half, I think, in the Ray cabinet uh, because he got a little bit too outlandish and posed as a sunshine boy. And there's a lot of stuff about Peter. But but he spoke his mind. I mean, you knew that. I mean, you guys wrote about it for the longest time. And I asked him, uh, I said, what is it with you guys? Because there was some concern then about some of the broken promises already, you know, about you know a year into the, the Ray administration. I said, you guys promise everybody the sun, the moon, and the stars, and you get in there, and then something seems to happen. I said, is it the air in there? And he, he looked at me, and he says, let me tell you something. And he says, you know something? He says, I come from a well. And I said, yeah, yeah. He says, we 99% of the people that do this are sincere when they're running for office, and they really do want to make a change. And they get in there, and you're right. Initially, a lot of this stuff starts to go on, and they, it starts to happen. But he says, then you look around, and you've got these beautiful offices there at Queen's Park, and you've got staff waiting on your hand and foot. You've got a budget that's going on, and you've got people that are looking up to you. And he says, there's a little adulation going on. And he says, there's a little voice in the back of your head that starts speaking to you that says, I have to do whatever it takes to keep this. And, and he says, some of us give into it, some of us don't. And, and I got to think, you know, that's, that's maybe what's going on with these guys, because it happens to all of them. 
Well, we see it. We see it federally, and uh, they're still in their first term. And uh, no, it just it's it's unfortunately it just seems to be the way that it is these days. And I don't know. It just there's a whole bunch of reasons for it, I guess. But I, I, I wanted to just go back for a second. Sure, we got about a minute left. Yeah, what you said about uh, Peter Cormos. Do you know why he was let go, or kicked out of cabinet? We all thought it was because of the Sunshine Boy. Yeah, that was that. that was the headline. Yeah, it, well, it wasn't because I I broke the story. His advisor on women's issues was found to have battered his wife, mm. and that was. I mean, the other things counted. That was the final issue that, that they kept him out of cabinet. It was little known, anyway. Just a little piece of history. <laughs> oh, the inside stuff. Uh, Richard, always a pleasure. We'll wait the verdict later on this morning and see just what happens. I appreciate the time today. All right. Thank you very much, Bill. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, former cover of uh, This guy, I mean, he was at Queen's Park, and for that matter, Parliament Hill long before that. So a lot of the inside baseball stuff, and he's got the insight because he knows them all. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Councilor Lloyd Ferguson uh, has been re-elected for another term as chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. That was yesterday afternoon. And uh, it was an issue that was uh, somewhat cloudy because uh, there was a uh, citizens group that was actually petitioning uh, some members of the uh, committee and certainly some council members uh, to vote against Lloyd Ferguson, the uh, Community Coalition Against Racism. Uh, suggested that it was time for a change at the top of the Police Services Board. Well, ultimately, the vote was 5-2 to two in favor of uh, retaining uh, Lloyd Ferguson as the chair of the Police Services Board. Uh, what's going to happen going forward? Let's talk to one of the board members. Terry White, head the council for Ward 8 up in the West Mountain, has been a longtime member of the Police Services Board, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Terry, good morning. Welcome to the program today. It's great to be with you, Bill, and your listeners. Well, thanks so much. Uh, there's a lot of controversy that has swirled around this, uh, what usually is kind of a rubber stamp thing, but I understand that uh, that part of the, the mandate, of course, of the Police Services Board is annually uh, they have to select uh, the chair of the board. That's uh, that's not a, a a position that's held on for the whole term. It's it's done on an annual basis. Uh, your response to to some of the pushback from some members of the community that uh, that maybe there was a, t- a time for a change there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to uh, uh, make it clear to the listeners that, in my humble opinion, over and above the cultural issues in the in the community. Uh, I, I believe that uh, Lloyd Ferguson has been doing a pretty good job as a chair of the board, so I certainly want to put that out there. Um, the concern, though, is you know between the pushing of uh, a reporter, uh, his statements on uh, Colombians, uh, and the recent uh, uh, OCPT uh, decision, uh, I started getting uh, inundated with emails, not just from the uh, anti-racism groups, but the Polish groups, the Muslim groups, and residents and saying that you can't be awarded on the eve of of a suspension uh, with with the chairmanship, especially with the uh, some of the cultural sensitivity and issues. Uh, so, from my perspective, uh, this probably was a one time uh, that he shouldn't be acclaimed. There should be a bit of a challenge to send a message. And I think that was achieved yesterday. How did you vote? I voted against. Uh, 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 well, I voted for Walter again. It was, it was to me. I think. The, 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 the numbers and the vote and, his, and, and his success of chairmanship, you know, from what I understood, was already in play. And I think that the community uh, wanted at least that it be challenged so that it wasn't uh, a complete, uh, um, you know, uh, a complete uh, victory party for, for the chairmanship under the uh, context of what I've already mentioned. 
So what's going to happen going forward then? I mean, these voices and there's I mean, some, of your, some of your fellow counselors uh, that don't sit on the board, but I mean, some of the guys around the council table and women for, for that matter, I would think, seem to have some concerns here, some questions here. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you rationalize that? Even some of the things that you just mentioned that you consider to be you know, black marks against uh, Councillor Ferguson uh, were things that he did as a city councillor, not as the chair of the police services board. Do you not separate those two things? Well, I think you need to. I think to, uh, and the other, but you know, when you think about the police board, uh, you, you're dealing with a, a multi-diverse community. Uh, you need to ensure that the perception of the police board and certainly its leadership is one of cultural sensitivity. And I think uh, uh, because of some of the, the, the things I've cited, the trans- transgressions I cited, uh, that has been damaged. And I think that the uh, the chair has, uh, uh, Lloyd Ferguson has uh, a role now to play to to ensure that he does as much as he can to bridge those gaps to ensure that that perception of uh, lack of cultural sensitivity is uh, not, uh, it, it doesn't hold water. Well, let me ask you: Where is you, you've talked about some of the smoke? Is the fire there? Is there a cultural insensitivity on that police services board? Uh, no, not on the board, uh, and I don't believe uh, uh, personally. I don't believe it's uh, with Lloyd. I think uh, for the most part, part Lloyd does things good ba- uh, in uh, good faith, and I think that uh, uh, to suggest otherwise just is not knowing the individual. I think that. Uh, uh, you know, he's made mistakes, and there's no question about it, uh, and he's made amends uh, for those mistakes. I think there's a, a clear understanding, especially with uh, what transpired yesterday at the board with the vote, that he didn't get automatically acclaimed, that the message is uh, sent loud and clear that he doesn't want to do. But uh, you've been in public life a long time, Terry, and, and I'm not going to be dismissive of anybody's actions, but the reality is, is uh, you know, <laughs> he who is without sin throw the first stone. You've been down this road a number of times, even as a member of the Police Services Board. I mean, there were accusations a few years ago about some of the comments that you made to a fellow board member. Uh, you and, and the former chief uh, butted heads on a number of different occasions. It happens. It's, 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 not a, a, it's not a day at the park. It's not a picnic. It's, it's a pretty contentious board, and, and tempers do flare, and, and people get a little riled. Absolutely, and that's and 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 you know, uh, and I hope the general public understands that uh, uh, this is not about uh, you know th- this is not a, a tea party. I mean, when you go <laughs> into these things, you've got diverse opinions uh, and uh, firmly held on, and it's going to be argued. And at times, in a heated discussion, uh, things could uh, uh, mistakes can be made, and certainly mistakes have been made. And it's what you do with those mistakes, and how you learn from those mistakes, and how you build the bridges that are uh, abundantly important. And as was, as was the situation in your circumstances when, when you had some of those contentious moments, as it is with Lloyd Ferguson, there was a process put in place, those things were dealt with, uh, adjudications were made, uh, rendered, and just, you know, decisions rendered on that. Uh, you're supposed to move on, but I get the sense sometimes some of these people don't want to move on. Uh, well, some people don't. Uh, some people already have, uh, and, and, and I think this is the difference: is is when you work with an individual day uh, day by day, versus somebody that already observes from uh, afar. Um, they may not really know the person. Um, I think I've come to know, uh, for example, in this case, Lloyd Ferguson, and I know that uh, uh, that his um, you know his heartfelt uh, positions are, are not racist. Uh, I don't, you know, I believe that he is a, a, a very fair-minded individual and does operate in good faith, and I think he's made mistakes, and we all do. Uh, and I think uh, uh, what transpired at the police board yesterday, and the reason why I didn't support him, uh, and I made it clear, it's not because he's not doing a good job, but it's because of the cultural perceptions in this uh, community 
in regards to the exclusivity, and it's basically sending a message to Lloyd that he's got to work on that issue. Well, and I think he's admitted to that. What about the other members of the board? Are, are, are they without sin here? I mean, there's the, there seems to be a perception here uh, with the Police Services Board that it's a divided board, uh, and, and, and as a result, uh, we seem to spend a lot more time when we're talking about the Police Services Board talking about some of the sideshow issues and not about the mandate of the board itself. Uh, well, there's been certainly a number of uh, uh, bumps uh, on the road. I think there's, uh, uh, you know, you can have just one member that gets elected or, or, or appointed on the board that uh, uh, that can create, um, uh, you know, create attention, an unhealthy tension, and uh, and I think hopefully, at least my observation, it's improved. Uh, other than the uh, incident uh, between uh, uh, Madeline Levy and uh, and Walter. Uh, that was one off. But I can say that uh, my sense of the board is it's been getting much better uh, since uh, Lloyd Ferguson arrived. So what happens going forward then? Even if some of the people on council and some of the people in the community uh, don't want to use the phrase again to move on from this, uh, can the board, can they work as a united board in a, as an agency right now to, to deliver the mandate? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, I mean, the board, uh, at the end of the day, uh, the chair is just one representative of the board, only has one vote. Uh, uh, it, the actions of the board is what should be judged uh, by this community and not one individual. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, I put myself on that board. I take my role uh, seriously as every other board member, and I think it's important that we understand uh, some of these cultural sensitivities as a board, as a, as a, as a complete unit and ensure uh, that we continue the dialogue and address those issues and concerns as we move forward. One of those issues is diversity. Let, let's talk about that. And, and, and you touched on something a second ago, Terry, that I think is worth repeating here, is, is city council only apports one member. I mean, obviously you and, and, and Councillor Ferguson and the mayor are on there, and that's a decision among the councillors themselves. But the citizen appointees, those that sit on that police services board, only one is as a municipal employee. Yep. Uh, there has been a hue and cry, and I think it's something that needs to be listened to, that there needs to be more uh, emphasis on diversity and a, and a better reflection of this community. Does the city council take that into consideration when they oh, decide who that person's going to be? Absolutely. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, as a chair of the selection committee, uh, that only one time that I recall that we actually had uh, somebody from the visual minority community apply for the police services board, uh, he was a teacher, and he came across very well. Uh, and I certainly supported him and thought uh, uh, the need to put him on the board uh, was at play, at, even at that time. Uh, that individual was not successful. And if I think, if I recall right, we ended up uh, uh, appointing Jim Kay at that time. So uh, I take that seriously. Uh, the challenge is if, if they're not applying, uh, then there's no one to consider. Um, and that's and I think we need to do a better job in reaching out to uh, the ethnic by diversity communities and uh, and and encourage uh, uh, leaders from those communities to to make application for the board. The challenges are not applying. Well, and I, I know that uh, in the past, of course, Nancy D. Gregorio, former chair of the Police Services Board uh, and a former uh, high school principal and trustee, uh, sat and, and served the board quite well. It has been there, but that's not just a Police Services Board problem, Terry. You've heard this 
from the police service themselves. And that the, those same community voices that are talking about the membership on the police services board also point to Hamilton Police Services and said, where's the diversity? Where's the, the proper representation of, of the ethnic makeup of this community? Yeah, so no, at this point, i got to make it clear I'm speaking as an, uh, as an individual and providing an opinion as a, a board member because uh, I certainly don't want to uh, uh, f- f- run afoul with uh, the current policies at, at the police board because there's only one spokesperson for the police board, and that is the chair. So I want to make sure I'm prefacing, uh, putting that out before I make any comment. Yeah, but you've heard uh, those comments. Yeah, so as an individual, uh, it's, it's my opinion we need diversity on, on, the, on the board without question. I mean, we do have a very diverse uh, community. But I think that's a role that is uh, um, um, equally um, responsible between the provincial government and the city. And certainly the province has had an opportunities to, uh, through their appointments, uh, to make uh, diverse appointments, and they haven't done that uh, since Nancy Cagoro. Well, talk to me about uh, about the dialogue that goes back and forth. And again, I understand that it's, it's Chair Ferguson's responsibility uh, to echo and, and to articulate the sentiments and the policies of the board to, for instance, the provincial, provincial government. But the Attorney General, uh, Minister Nackvi, has made some commitments that he wants to make some ch- changes to the Police Services Act. Uh, is is that uh, a part of that discussion, part of that uh, d- discussion about exactly how we can do this and, and how that selection is made, uh, not just the municipal employees, but certainly the provincial appointees as well? Yeah, I, I don't believe, uh, I could be wrong, but I don't believe there's been any significant changes on the appointment process other than uh, a generalized comments about, uh, uh, you know, moving uh, to uh, boards that better reflect the, uh, the communities they represent. So there's been uh, sort of overarching comments made, but uh, in, in, in practicality, I haven't seen any mechanism that uh, actually achieves that. I would hope, but we do need to have that discussion, even at the city level. I think we need to uh, talk because you know mo- most of, as you know, most of our uh, programs are, are are reactive. So we put the advertising out, people uh, apply, and then we uh, go through the list, list and and appoint people from those that are applying. The problem is if you got areas of community that aren't getting involved, especially with key boards such as the police board that aren't applying, then maybe uh, identifying that as a is a as a challenge and a problem. We need to develop a strategy to reach out to those communities to encourage them to be uh, making those applications so they can be uh, considered. And I think the other thing we need to uh, talk about is whether uh, the police board could create uh, a skill set and dynamic uh, uh, as a guideline uh, to both the province and the city uh, before they make any appointments to ensure that uh, uh, there's an understanding of what the needs are. Is that you? You chaired the meeting. You mentioned the, the, the committee, of course, that makes those selections. Uh, is there been some dialogue about that? About maybe there's a better way to reach out to the community than the way that that they currently do. I mean, it used to simply be some online stuff. Uh, they'd advertise in, in the spec. Uh, not a whole lot of anything else to actually reach out to those specific communities. That you know, you're absolutely correct, and and, uh, and certainly by having this conversation with you and and knowing that it is a shortfall and a concern that the current. Uh, process in place isn't uh, getting the job done and, and ensuring that we got uh, uh, a broad diversity reflect on, on many of our boards and agencies, and especially in, in, in boards such as the police board, and we need to uh, uh, develop strategies around that. So certainly uh, I am raising those questions, and I think now we need to move a motion and, and, and provide some direction. You had some discussion yesterday at the meeting after the vote was held and, and the determination made that Councillor Ferguson was going to continue as the chair. Uh, about the mandate and about the, the, the job ahead in 2018, and, and there are some pretty tough decisions coming up for this board. 
There always is, Bill. Uh, you know, the, the, the police service uh, board is, uh, and certainly from a community perspective, is uh, uh, something that they come uh, to heavily rely on in regards to, uh, uh, you know, quality of life and, and, and safe living in, in our community. And, uh, and so the challenge is always going to be to balance uh, those resources. Uh, and there's new areas of, you know, uh, uh, child pornography, uh, you know, Internet uh, fraud. Uh, there are new areas uh, that never uh certainly we're not at the level they are today that are putting and taxing some of the resources of police services so clearly uh we have to balance uh the safety issues of our community uh with our ability to pay and of course uh, i guess when you look at, at at the staffing issues here you uh you need a new deputy chief yes and in fact uh not only deputy chief but uh we're we're now uh, and, and this was uh, again councillor for instance uh uh, leadership and suggestion, and, and that's why you know uh, I don't like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, it is a great one uh, that we're now uh, going to be appointing a CEO uh, to the, the board as well, uh, which will have will be a civilian that has uh, uh, a much broader uh, acumen in regards to uh, you know finances. What do you think of that idea? I think it's a great idea, and I think it was, it's times well overdue. And if you go through uh, the states and. I believe there are even some models that may exist here in, in North America as well, or in Canada as well. So uh, I, I think it's a great idea. And uh, clearly it got uh, you know, support of the board, and uh, and we're about to hire one. Oh, I think it made all kinds of sense because it's essentially it's it's administrative work. Uh, yeah. And it's it's the job of an administrator and, and whoever it was, and it's usually been one of the deputies over the last couple of terms, uh, pretty much takes them away from doing policing work and doing paperwork, you know, putting you know, th- these numbers in this file, this, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's necessary, but it's, uh, it's, it's taking away, I think, from the, the abilities that that, that, uh, that officer might have to be able to put towards some of the other work that's going on because there's a lot of stuff piling up here. I know you talked about the increase in the number of uh, shootings and the gunplay that's going on, yeah. uh, the, the, the drug trade, obviously, a number of concerns like that. I mean, that's policing, and that's really, you'd like to think, where a lot of the onus is going to be for, for the people that are going to be in that particular position. And let's face it, you know, uh, when you're promoting through the, through the line, you're promoting, uh, in most cases, uh, people that predominantly uh, have uh, most of their skill sets in policing. And they're moving up through the line up to, you know, superintendents and, and deputies. And, and uh, um, But where's that financial acumen? Where's that financial expert, in, you know, uh, coming to that line? And you really, really don't have that. So uh, by going to the CEO, I think we are now establishing that uh, one, there's a need, and two, I think it uh, will reap benefits for the future. One final question on that, and it's an interesting point, because uh, it wasn't too long ago that you went through this whole process to find a new chief when uh, eventually you selected Eric Gert, who holds the position now. But one of the concerns that you and a number of your fellow board members expressed was the lack of people from within the ranks that made application for those jobs that were available. And there were a couple of other ones, but the chief obviously the big one. As you move towards this process of trying to find a new deputy, is there a concern that that may happen again? Well, I think, uh, if I recall, we're, we're uh, with the deputy, we're doing internal and external. Uh, so clearly, uh, after the last go-around, <clears throat> I think there was some concern that uh, we want a real competition to hire uh, the best. And uh, if you've got limited uh, uh, numbers coming forward internally, then we really are forced to uh, uh, include uh, external applications. 
so that uh, you have a true competition to make these informed decisions. Well, uh, there's a lot to be done, and uh, and I know that there's going to be a full agenda right through the uh, the next year, and uh, we just hope that some of the sideshow sh- side stuff, I'm sorry, that uh, that predominated an awful lot of the coverage of police services board is beyond us and behind us now, and we can kind of move on from this. Terry, yeah, thanks. I, Go ahead. I just had a fishing comment on that. I mean, the, there's always going to be, whether, whether it's in politics uh, or on, on boards, uh, you know, regretfully uh, these things happen. Um, but these, uh, the board uh, or even council at that matter should be, um, really, we should be, uh, uh, this is what I'm looking for, uh, looked at in regards to the actions taken uh, and, 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 and what is being produced. Uh, you know, the board has done a lot of great things, and I think we've come in with the, one of the lowest budgets yet uh, in the police services, and, you know, crime is, overall crime is down. So uh, there are good things happening and are good decisions being made. Well, uh, that's a discussion we'll have in the uh, upcoming weeks as you move into the budget process. Terry, thanks again. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Ward 8 Councillor Terry Whitehead, and of course, also a member of the Hamilton Police Services Board. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, Donald Trump is in the news. Boy, you could just start every show with that. <laughs> By the way, t- uh, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of him being uh, sworn in as the uh, President of the United States. You can celebrate that in any way that you feel is uh, suitable. But uh, there is a petition, actually a number of petitions uh, that are circulating around Canada these days to try to ban Donald Trump from crossing the 49th parallel and attending an upcoming G7 meeting that's going to be held in Quebec. Uh, Tim Harper writes about that, freelance writer and editor. It's in today's Toronto Star, and Tim joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about that and the implications. Morning, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. Uh, Early happy uh, Trump anniversary to you, and and, uh, many happy three years uh, more return. I just, I I still remember, I I happened to be off that day last uh, year when uh, when he was actually being sworn in, and uh, sitting there by myself, my wife had to go to work, and I'm sitting, and I literally, if I had a dollar for every time I sit there, said, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) Uh, And here we are a year later, and and we, a number of us, we're grasping at the idea that, you know what, he's going to get impeached, he'll get kicked out, he's never going to last a year. Well, he's, he's lasted a year, at least... Well, I guess we got 24 hours left to go. He's but, endured a year. But not without controversy, and, and a lot of it on this side of the border. It's, it's a great piece today, the misguided attempts to bar Donald Trump from Canada. Not surprising the petitions would be around here, but as you write, Tim, it's, it's pretty misguided. Well, uh, I believe it is, but, uh, you know, I understand the sentiment. Let me say that. It's, if these um, petitions, uh, the uh, Canadian uh, Journalists for Free Expression and the Council of Canadians are two of them that I, I refer to in the column, um, the one has been taken down, but if the Council of Canadians um, petition is just a way for Canadians to blow off steam and make a make a statement, uh, I understand that. But you know, um, barring a, a duly elected uh, leader of our largest uh, trading partner and a key security partner from a, a G7 summit in Quebec is just uh, it's beyond the pale. So. It's not going to happen, and it shouldn't happen, but um, I, I will tell you, I understand some of the sentiment behind uh, uh, some of these petitions, and I give the Council of Canadians full credit. They are now uh, essentially using my column as a way to beef up the number <laughs> of uh, signatures they've gotten. Uh, they're, they're up over thirteen or 14,000 now in the latest count. But it's not, it's not something that the federal government's going to heed. Oh, you can't. I mean, can you imagine the, um, the fallout if... Uh, the federal government somehow barred uh, a G7 leader from a from a summit. Uh, you know, this is not Vladimir Putin yet, uh, who uh, 
was booted from the G8. I was at that meeting. You know, he had uh, annexed Crimea. Uh, he had violated international law. Um, we could spend the entire interview going through um, Trump's uh, faults and foibles and, and why Canadians don't like him. But he is the duly elected uh, uh, president of the United States, and he's a G7 leader, and there's a G7 summit here. Um, there is no way that the Trudeau government could ever countenance uh, barring him at the border. The fallout would be catastrophic. Well, there's there are some other things at play here, and, and you referenced the, uh, the the UK situation, which I think is is very uh, instructive here. Uh, you know, because not only were there petitions in the UK to ban Trump from showing up there, I mean, a number of people rose in Parliament and petitioned the Prime Minister to ban him and tell him not to come. That's right. Uh, now, eventually, he he's, he did cancel the trip. Uh, but I think that was because, as you've written in the, in the piece today, uh, they knew full well what kind of a reception he was going to get from the population over there if he did show up. There's an important distinction to be made. Though. This was a uh, an invitation from the uh, Prime Minister, Theresa May, for a um, an official state visit uh, to London. Uh, this was not part of a, um, a, a an international summit uh, of which Trump was a, uh, was a member, the United States was a member. Uh, and this was going to be like in an urban area. There was uh, London. There was no way that uh, that Theresa May could possibly have guaranteed there wouldn't be massive street protests there, embarrassing Donald Trump. Uh, there'd be no upside for Theresa May either. So it was, it was in many respects a, a misguided uh, invitation. But it was a totally different visit than what we're talking about uh, attending a G7 summit in Quebec in June. There, there is a there is an official courtesy invitation that has been issued by Justin Trudeau to Donald Trump to come up to Canada and visit him, presumably in Ottawa. But uh, I don't think there's any expectation that's going to happen in the foreseeable future for the very same reasons. I believe that the message that was delivered by the, the British uh, uh, population at large, that you are not welcome here, uh, is essentially being delivered here by Canadians which means that there, there can't be any thinking person in the Trump administration uh, to the extent that there are thinking people in the Trump administration who could uh, imagine uh, the president coming up to Canada without being swamped by angry demonstrators everywhere he went. And, and they don't want that optic. And, and Justin Trudeau, uh, there's no upside for him uh, for this to happen. So, you know, the, the courtesy invitation is there, but I wouldn't hold my breath on uh, anybody acting on it. And you drew the analogy, uh, I think it was very apt about uh, Obama's first visit up here. It was just after he was sworn in, uh, nine, almost nine years ago, I guess now. But uh, and, and the adulation that that, that met uh, Obama, and that was not an official state visit. That was really a quickie. You know, you flew in, had some meetings, uh, uh, talked with the prime minister. Uh, as you mentioned, went to the Byward Market and, uh, and was back on a plane before dinner time. I'll never forget that, Bill, because I was there. And the the one picture that uh, uh, sticks in my mind is the uh, uh, Prime Minister Harper and Obama standing at the um, in front of the center block on a very very cold Ottawa night, um, and Obama waving to the crowd, and the crowd just as you say the adulation and the cheering, and Harper looking rather sheepish about how <laughs> how he managed to be standing there with such a a, a popular U.S. president who was getting waves of applause that Stephen Harper had never received uh, from Canadians himself. Well, and that was a rather uh, tenuous handshake when he met him in the Parliament buildings. I mean, uh, that was the first face-to-face meeting since Harper had actually gone on record on Fox News and said he didn't think Obama should be president. 
Uh, yet, in you know, a couple of weeks later, here he is welcoming him to the to the to the, the Parliament buildings. But uh, you remember Tim? <laughs> First of all, we should mention a couple of things. It gets damn cold in Ottawa in February, <laughs> so, uh, so it was a bitterly cold day as usual when he landed. But the the crowds lined the streets from the That's airport right. right to the Parliament buildings, waving flags. And I can still remember Rosie Barton who was covering that. She was on the street That's reporter, exactly and she right. was almost gushing. Oh, I saw him! I think I saw him. Uh, and this is a veteran reporter. I mean, there was a there was a buzz in the air about this. Uh, there'll be a buzz in the air if Donald Trump ever tried to do that, but for all the wrong reasons. Well, it's it's funny you you just sparked a couple of memories of it. One one is uh, it's to this day, I believe, or at least the last time I was there, there is still a picture of Obama in the bakery buying that uh, uh, beaver tail. Yeah, yeah, uh, we were there. We were there. For, you know, when we were up in Ottawa for Grey Cup, we went to that same place, and yep. yeah, they've got the picture right there. So it's been there for years. Um, you can't imagine a picture of Donald Trump hanging anywhere in Ottawa, uh, uh, let alone in the uh, the, the tourist street Byward Market. But you, you remind me of another uh, um, U.S. presidential visit that I covered, George W. Bush. Uh-huh. Uh, and there were also people lining the street um, for Bush coming in for all the wrong reasons as far as Bush was concerned. And uh, uh, a number of them were giving him the finger and the president uh did a media availability and he said he wanted to thank the canadians for the warm welcome particularly those who greeted him with one hand (laughs) (laughs) and 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 going even further back to give away my age his his father when he made his first visit to canada uh after election with brian mulrooney it was also uh ottawa in, in february i believe he came up very quickly and the first thing he said at the scrum beside Mulrooney was, Brian, it's damn cold up here. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, your, your point's well taken, and I'm glad you, you pointed that out in the piece. Uh, a G7 meeting is, is quite different from a, 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 a state visit, a, you know, an official visit with a dinner or, or addressing the parliament, as, as uh, sometimes happens. But G7... Uh, and the last time we had one up here, of course, was up in the Huntsville area. There, there was a G20 right after that. We all know how that ended. But oh, yeah. the G7 uh, was way up at, uh, at Deerhurst, just outside of Huntsville. And, and frankly, you don't even know that they're there because it's an outside, it's, it's a kind of an isolated location. They helicopter them in, helicopter them out. And aside from all the enhancements that Tony Clement did to Huntsville there to try to get ready for that, nobody knew that anything was going on. Uh, and it's, that's what's going to happen in June. They've set up, um, the ICMP set up uh, designated uh, demonstration areas far, far, far from the summit. Um, no no, um, no Canadian is actually probably going to see Donald Trump except on uh, the pooled co- coverage on your TV screen. Uh, and he'll be, sure, he'll be, um, I, I assume the same thing, they'll be choppering in. Uh, he'll be at the, there at the meeting, and he'll leave. He's not, you know, he's not coming out glad hand with. They, uh, they learned that lesson Canadian a few support. years ago, didn't they, Tim? When there, when there was a G seven, I guess it was years ago in Quebec City area, wasn't it? And it got ugly. I mean, there were protests in the streets, and it got ugly. Police were using tear gas and all sorts of stuff. And now they they try to find some isolated spot for these guys to get together. You might have been talking about the summit of the Americas in two thousand. That's the one. Yeah, that's the I one. Was there, and that did get very ugly because, like the the. The summit uh, site and the media site uh, were right smack downtown. It's been a long time since uh, you've had any kind of um, uh, international uh, summitry uh, held right in a, in a in a major urban area. I remember the Battle of Seattle, uh, which predated uh, yeah. Quebec City only by about a year or so. They're now held in uh, isolated uh, rural kind of resort areas that, that can be more easily secured and and. Um, they're very. There's no interaction with uh, uh, with 
voters or, or people on the street or anything like that. The problem you alluded to with the, the G20 in Toronto and, and all the fallout there was that Stephen Harper inflicted that on the um, uh, on downtown Toronto with very little notice uh, after having the uh, the G8, as you say, meet up in Huntsville. He then he brought the, the, the G20 with a, a number of unpopular leaders right down uh, right in downtown Toronto and didn't really give the uh, the Toronto Police Service uh, and, and all the other uh, police services that were recruited didn't really give them time to uh, properly prepare for this. So that uh, that isn't going to happen in June. It's a, it's an apples and oranges thing, but uh, yeah. as you mentioned, uh, the fact that, by the way, Trump is celebrating this one-year anniversary tomorrow of being sworn in. First time in 40 years a, a, a president has not made that visit. Uh, usually, if not the first, one of the first uh, visits they make outside the United States is to Canada. That's not happening now. And here's the interesting thing from my perspective. Nobody made a big deal out of it. It was just uh, nobody, nobody was uh, itching for him to, to come up here and say hi. Um, the, the media uh, rather ignored it until we almost got to the year point. It was just kind of understood that um, why would he come up here? Contrast that to um, um, Bush's, uh, and I'm, I was working in Washington at the time, but at one point George W. Bush decided to go to Mexico uh, first for his first visit out of the, the uh, U.S., and the hue and cry up here in Canada about being snubbed and tradition is lost and it shows you he's from Texas and all his priorities are to the south. It was a big deal that uh, Bush didn't come up here for his first visit and went to Mexico instead. Trump didn't come up here and everybody kind of shrugged and said, hey, that's cool with me. And, but the, the background on that, obviously, was uh, Canada's, uh, well, snubbing, I guess, of the Iraq war. And, and Jean Chrétien saying he's not going to send troops, a proof is a proof, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, and I think most Canadians agree with the Prime Minister's assertion. Uh, the, the way he articulated it maybe wasn't the best thing to do. But uh, but that was basically uh, the, the Bush administration snubbing the Canadian government for not backing them in the Iraq war. Well, he actually cancelled a visit. Uh, yeah. Uh, in, in May after that, he was supposed to come up uh, to Canada, and Bush actually canceled the visit. Well, and that would be interesting. Now, and again, we go back to the U.K. situation where he said he's not going to show up at the U.K. after all, and of course he's blaming the Obama administration for closing down a, an embassy location down, down there that, uh, that frankly wasn't even an Obama decision. It was done before that when George W. was still there, but you know, Trump has never let the facts get in the way of a good rant. But but in that circumstance, they tried to, to weasel out of this. Uh, I don't get the sense that uh, that they're even caring about this so much, and they don't have to make excuses. They're just not going to show up. Well, he's never, unlike um, the the uh, canceled British trip, he never indicated that he was going to come up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the, the initial invitation from Trudeau uh, was in November of 16, right after the election. And it's it was just common courtesy, right? Uh, no matter what you thought of the guy, he's now uh, the president of the United States, our neighbor to the south. So you you go through the pro forma. In uh, we'd love to see you come up to Canada. Here, I invite you to come up. I don't think anybody had ever uh, has ever really seriously thought that Donald Trump was going to fly up to Ottawa. Um, Did you get the sense then, Tim, that the, the, the quote unquote invitation from the prime minister? Uh, when they were down in Washington, was was akin to somebody you know went after you see somebody. Hey, we'll have to stay in touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll do that. Sure, sure. Let's do lunch. And yeah, it's the right thing like, to say. Years later, it's like, oh, geez, I wonder what happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I think it was a diplomatic nicety, but uh, I can guarantee you that uh, Justin Trudeau and, and his um, 
his inner circle would um, their their heads would explode if Trump ever called and said, "Hey, I'd like to come up to Ottawa and see, uh, uh, maybe drop by Toronto, Montreal, see your country." Uh, <laughs> can you imagine the security headache? And um, you know, there, as I say, the uh, what that would do to the relationship because Canadians would be storming the uh, the garrisons when Trump's there, and um, Trump would somehow blame Trudeau for um, not welcoming welcoming him. Um, Trump, as you as you well know, likes to go to places where he's uh, treated like royalty, like he like he was in Saudi Arabia, like he was in Israel. Uh, I guess the the outlier there was that uh, Macron of France invited him for a a visit on uh, Bastille Day, I believe it was, and 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 Trump went, um, uh, which was an interesting visit. But uh, beyond that, he likes to go to places where uh, he can be guaranteed a little bit of adulation. And you can strike Canada off that list. Yeah, you you quoted some of the uh, public opinion polls that suggest I think it's only about thirteen percent of Canadians actually look favorably upon Trump. Most of them are in Alberta, um, which is not surprising, and I, I don't mean that in a disparaging tone. But you take uh, Alberta out of that Angus Reid equation, and you're you're in single digits uh, in, the, in the rest of Canada. So, you know, people were were joking on my Twitter feed and my email yesterday. Why doesn't he just go visit Calgary or Edmonton? Uh, but even there, you've only got like 29% support uh, for what he's doing and what he stands for. Um, a, a lot of uh, the, the outrage to, uh, that, I, that I'm getting after I wrote this column about, yeah, let's bar him. It's a visceral thing, but a lot of it stems from his uh, shithole comments from last week, if I can say that on your radio station. Oh, sure. Did. Um, it's become part of the vernacular now. Yeah, sure it is. And, see, and then that's also an effect of the... Uh, the Trump presidency is that you know we now we now use uh, language that we wouldn't normally use because the president of the United States uses it. But there seems to be a lot of uh, a lot of outrage or a lot of uh, discomfort over the fact that Justin Trudeau would not have condemned that statement last week when he was asked about it. I think the prime minister, I believe, said, uh, "You know, I don't think Canadians expect me to opine on what may or may not have been said by the president of the United States," which is you know is really the answer you have to give when you're grappling with a neighbor that the Trudeau even himself is called unruly. You're on the eve of a very critical round of uh, free trade NAFTA talks, which is uh, critically important to your country. You know, they've got to, they have been doing this since he was elected. They've got to walk on eggshells around the guy. They've got to bite their tongue. They've got to look the other way. Um, and, uh, you know, most Canadians, I think, viscerally would like Trudeau to say, look, I mean, this is not uh, how we uh, refer to these countries in Canada. This is an insult to a progressive country uh, that we're living in. But you really got to just bite your tongue. Um, you, you can't. You, you can't poke this guy because you never know what you're going to get. Well, I was mentioning earlier in the week when we we're talking about the resumption of the NAFTA negotiations uh, the next Tuesday that I, I think Trump has shown a propensity for wanting to make a splash and make a headline and do something outrageous. And I think walking away from the table would, would really play into that. And I think that's that's his long-term plan. He, he wants to kill these negotiations because that's going to make headlines. And and you don't want to be the guy, even if you're Justin Trudeau, to say it's something I said that made him do that. I think he was going to do it anyway, but he's looking for an excuse and a reason. And, uh, and he'll make one up if he can't find one, but boy, he'll grab one if you give it to him. He will. Uh, I, you know, I can't psychoanalyze his uh, his views on NAFTA any longer because he gave two absolutely uh, polar opposite 
uh, comments on NAFTA in two interviews this week. One about how it's it's a it's comical how bad it is for the United States and we should walk away. And then speaking to the Wall Street Journal, he talked about how he wanted to renegotiate a better deal and he might wait till after the Mexican elections. He uses NAFTA uh, as a as a distraction too when 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 things are not going well for him, which is usually Monday through Sunday. <laughs> and he, he he will he will lash out at NAFTA to try to change the channel. Um, even the uh, even the people at the table for the uh, Canadian government have no idea what kind of message he's sending anymore, and they have to they have to tune it out and try to uh, negotiate with uh, some uh, very difficult negotiating uh, difficult negotiating team from the U.S. and try to tune out what you're hearing from Trump. I think more likely, uh, and this is just a guess because I, I've been talking to people who are close to these talks that rather than walking away from it he wants a he wants a victory that he can crow about and if he can get some kind of victory and and Canada and Mexico particularly Canada can protect their their interests then i think it would be in the canadian interest to let him do his victory lap brag about something that is not a deal breaker for us uh, that isn't going to hurt us and, and let him talk about how he you know he took mexico and canada to the cleaners whatever he wants to say but get a deal because he has been lobbied very, very hard in the U.S. by uh, including Republican lawmakers about the danger of walking away from NAFTA. <coughs> Excuse me, and the the uncertainty about if he does give the six month notice, then what happens? Uh, what happens with Congress? What happens after the midterms? It's a it's a it's quite a stew if he if he does decide to give notice to walk away. But you know, Bill, I got to be honest with you, your guess is as good as mine. Exactly, Tim. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Enjoy chatting with you, Bill. Call Take care. Time. Thanks, Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor. Get a uh, look at his uh, great piece in the Toronto Star today. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.